live. All right, well, the last time I spoke, we had wrapped up the Tenth Commandment. And what I want to do now is take a look at the people of Israel's response to the Ten Commandments. So we're still going to be in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be at verse 18. And Exodus 20, verse 18 says this. It says, all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by, by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. But if you just jump into that right as it is, without having read chapter 19, you don't really get a good picture of what it's talking about here. Because if you start, you know, and go back and read in chapter 19, it talks about how they had left the land of Egypt, how they'd entered the wilderness of Sinai, and, and how Moses went up to the mountain of God, and God was speaking to him. And God told him, he said, I'm going to come to you, speaking to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear when I speak with you, and will always believe you. And... And then this is, this is what God says. He says, he's telling Moses, he says, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up to the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand may touch the mountain, but they will be stoned. And then Moses says this. And now listen to this. This is, this is a description. On the third day when the morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, a loud trumpet sound. Then Moses brought uh, the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. And the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. And the people <coughs> trembled. So that's what's going on. And God delivers the Ten Commandments to the people in that atmosphere. You know, you watch, you watch the old movie, The Ten Commandments, they don't quite capture that, uh, that what's going on. And it's made me think... Uh, about John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you remember that story, you know, it's telling of, of Christians' long spiritual journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And the story begins with Christian weighed down with the great burden of his sin. But he's fearful of the judgment to come. And so evangelist comes and tells him, to enter the narrow way of salvation where his burdens will be taken away. But not long after Christian begins his journey, his pilgrimage, he meets a man who informs him there's a faster way to get rid of your burden. All that Christian needed to do was go and see a gentleman named Legality. And this man lives in the village of morality. Pretty easy. And to put it in spiritual terms, he could get rid of his burden by simply keeping God's law. That's all. 
Just keep God's law. And Christian was intrigued by this possibility. Now, obviously, he didn't want to make his journey any longer or any more difficult. So if Mr. Legality could help him get rid of his burden, why not? And so he asked the way to Mr. Legality. Well, you have to go up that mountain and back down the other side. And Christian followed the man's directions. He starts going up the hill, but that all of a sudden that hill just starts getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And the burden on his back starts to get heavier and heavier and heavier. Then all of a sudden flashes of fire start coming out of this mountain. And it makes Christian afraid that he's going to get burned. And he trembled with fear. Now, Bunyan does not mention this hill or this mountain by name. But you get the idea that he probably had Mount Sinai in mind uh, for far from removing Christian's burdens. That hill of law or that mountain of the law only made his burdens heavier and made him more afraid. And I mean, this is because the law, as we've gone through and studied it, the law itself does not have the power to save, but to really to threaten us with judgment and show us our need for salvation and so when the children of Israel stood at Mount Sinai I get the sense they maybe felt the way that Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress terrified here was the presence of the Lord in thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and the people were trembling they, they stayed a great, great distance away. I mean, imagine a mountain with encompassed in smoke, smoke billowing from the mountain, balls of fire blazing from the peak, trumpet sounds from out of nowhere getting louder and louder. And it was because the Lord had descended to Mount Sinai. And when the people of Israel saw this visible manifestation of the glory of the invisible God, they were terrified. Because God's nearness can be a terrifying thing for sinners. Now, I thought it kind of interesting that back as I, I just told it back in chapter 19, God had set limits around the mountain and warned the people not to break through this boundary. Otherwise, they would be destroyed. And so initially, you kind of get the idea that they were close into the mountain, kind of crowding crowding around it. And I kind of get the imagery or picture of uh, events up on top of Grandfather Mountain, where there are just crowds and crowds of people just all, all around this uh, rock outcropping where they have music festivals or preaching services. Thing, and people are right there. That's at least what comes to my mind. The people were crowding in. They wanted to gaze. They wanted to look. But God tells Moses, don't let them step on the mountain because I will bring immediate judgment and destruction to anyone who sets foot on my mountain. But you know what? By the time God had finished giving his law, those precautions weren't necessary, were they? The Bible says they stayed at a distance, which implies that they were well behind this boundary or this perimeter that God had told Moses to set up. God came and met with them and they ran in the opposite direction. 
So we could say they feared, they trembled, and they stood at a distance. But why were the Israelites so frightened? You know, intimacy with God can be a frightening thing. Today, I think we often long for intimacy with God. But in doing so, we've got to be careful that we do not miss out on the reverence and the awe of God in that intimacy. And I think the children of Israel got the message loud and clear. They got the message of God's holiness, His glory, His might and power and sovereignty and His transcendence. It was there loud and clear on Mount Sinai. And they saw that. And think about it. They had just received the Ten Commandments. God had just given them His righteous requirements in the form of the Ten Commandments. They could see that God was demanding their total allegiance in every aspect of life. He required them to worship Him and Him alone and to love one another in everything. They did. Now, the Israelites probably didn't realize the full extent of God's law as we walk through it and talk about it. Uh, certainly, I think there were some things that they may have not grasped yet. They just received the law. You know, we've talked about how each commandment has a positive aspect and a negative aspect or how it governs the inner, inner attitudes as well as the outer actions or how just one uh, commandment really represents a whole category of sin and not just that one specific sin it might be talking about. But you know, surely I think they understood that God was making an absolute claim on their worship, on their time, on their relationships, on their possessions, on their bodies, on their speech, on their desires. An absolute claim. And so the first time that they heard the Ten Commandments, even before they learned them all by heart, the Israelites knew that God was giving them one righteous standard for all of life. Obey them, all of them, all the time. And this terrified them as well. You know, back in chapter 19, when all this started... They had said, oh, we will do whatever God says. But as soon as they found out what was included, they panicked. They were frightened by this total demand of God's law. And I think maybe, too, they were also frightened by the threat of God's judgment. I mean, think about it. The fire, the smoke, the thunder, the lightning. I mean, whether the Israelites knew it or not, I think this probably represents signs of what the final judgment uh, might be like. You know, the people had come into the very presence of the great and terrible judge of sin. And they were guilty sinners before a holy God. And they could sense this as a life-threatening encounter. You know, when they looked up at Mount Sinai, I think they were confronted with the condemning power of a law-giving God who will judge the world. They were confronted with the law. Now, what do we do today 
when we're confronted with the law. We hire a lawyer, don't we? And that's, that's, in a sense, that's what they did. So, they, as soon as they heard the demands of God's law, they asked Moses to be their legal advocate, their mediator. You know, they said to him, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. So the Israelites were now afraid to deal with God directly for obvious reasons. You know, the fire, the smoke, the glory of God was too much for them to bear. And so they wanted Moses to stand in between God and them. They wanted Moses to represent God's presence to them because God's immediate presence was just too overwhelming for them. I even wondered today, I said, uh, many people claim that they want to have, they, they want to experience the presence of God. Do you really? The Israelites couldn't stand it. The unmediated presence of God. If only God would speak to me directly. You see, when God spoke to the Israelites, they ran away. If only he would show himself to me then I would believe. I think people who make demands like that really have no idea exactly what they're asking. If God will only show himself to me, I will believe. I wonder, you know, I think anybody who has ever caught the slightest glimpse of God's true glory, they're going to be filled with fear. He's an awesome and all-powerful God whose holiness brings terror to sinners but brings grace to the saved. So this means that the Israelites, they were really right to ask for a mediator. They needed one. Think about it. A mediator is someone who stands in the gap to bring two parties together. Israelite, the Israelites needed somebody to stand between heaven and earth to bridge the gap between God and lowly humanity. They needed someone to be God's spokesman because they could not bear to hear the sound of God's voice. And even if they didn't realize it at that time, what they needed most of all was someone to protect them from God's curse, to protect them from his wrath against their sin. And so when the Israelites asked Moses to be their mediator, they were actually asking for something God had already provided. God had made Moses the mediator back at the burning bush, which is in Exodus 3. And the prophet Moses had been speaking for God ever since that time. The trouble is, what had the children of Israel been doing time and time again? As during Moses' career as their leader and mediator? Well, they had been questioning his authority. They had been questioning his role. But now, after experiencing God's holy presence like this, the people can't wait to hear Moses. It's like they're saying, uh, uh, excuse me, God, we'll listen to Moses now. We'll, we'll, we'll listen to him now. They were begging Moses to be their go-between. 
And what did God do? God exalted Moses in their eyes, just like he said he would. The people now realize that they needed mediation. You know, I sometimes wonder and think, if you're in the presence of God and you think that you're just fine, then one or two things is really happening. You're really not in the presence of God or you don't know yourself very well if you think you're just fine. You see, the children of God saw God's holiness and they saw their sin and they knew they needed a mediator. I think we can learn from them in that. And no sooner had the Israelites made their request then Moses began to serve as their mediator. And he started doing the things that a mediator is called to do. He First, he spoke to them for God. He reassured them that God's purpose in coming to them was good. And his visitation was not meant to scare them to death. Verse 20 says, Moses responded to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. Now later, when Moses is looking back on this, this is out of Deuteronomy. He says, at that time, I was standing between the Lord and you, being the mediator, to report the word of the Lord to you, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. That's out of Deuteronomy chapter 5. So what can we take? What can we learn from this? What Moses is explaining to them is that there is a difference between being frightened of God and fearing God. There's a world of difference there. Notice what Moses says. He says, don't be afraid. Don't fear, maybe in some translations. And if, whether you've realized it or not, this appears dozens of times in Scripture. Just a couple of examples. When Mary is approached by the angel Gabriel, what's the first thing that he says to her? Do not be afraid. When the disciples are out in the boat and saw Jesus walking to them on the water, they were terrified. And Jesus spoke to them and said, don't be afraid. Just a couple of examples. So over and over, be it God appearing, the angel of the Lord, or a representative when they draw near to speak to speak to the children of men the reaction of men is fear and the kind and good and gracious word from God is always don't be afraid and that is precisely what Moses says to him here don't be afraid he says don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. So, but the, the phrase, God has come so that you will fear him, there's the fear him. But the afraid, they're not the same. There's a world of difference, as I said. Moses is going on to explain that they should not fear God because he's done this thing. He has shown them this display of his power, he's drawn near to them so that they will fear him. But that fear that he's speaking of, is not a fear of terror or of dread, but it's a reverence 
That leads to obedience. A reverence and awe of a gracious and sovereign God. And Moses goes on to explain that God has a twofold reason here for what he's done. He's come to test you and he's come to instill the fear of God in you. He's come to test you. That is, he's come to prove to them their need for a mediator. And secondly, God's awesome visual and audible display was designed to cultivate an abiding fear of God that would lead to obedience so that you will fear him and will not sin. You see, the people of God, us, in the presence of the Almighty God, really are to experience two things at the same time. On the one hand, we are to realize that God is an awesome God. And we ought to realize, too, that we should fall under judgment. We really deserve judgment and condemnation. But then we also realize that God is a good and merciful God. And He's provided for us, just like He did for them, a mediator. He redeemed them out of Egypt. And He was for them as He is for us. You know, I sometimes struggle with this and, and go back and forth. But I think when, when you have a respectable, a real fear of God, there's a sense of thinking, you know, I don't have any business being here in the presence of God. And yet, this is the one place I need to be. You know, we have no right on our own to be in God's presence. And yet as Christians, there isn't any other place we should desire to be. And those two components are always held there in that tension. There's a uh, section. I, I, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis's writings. Big fan of it. And, and there's, a, there's a passage that I just love out of this. If you'll uh, bear with me as I read it. It's, it's where uh, the, the children there, uh, in particular uh, uh, Lucy and Susan, are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Uh, and Mr. Beaver is talking to them about Aslan, the lion. And it kind of goes like this. Well, is, is he a man? Lucy asked. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. And here's the question. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mrs. Peter, that you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Peter speaks up and says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point. I'm longing to see him. I think that's how the fear of God should be in us. There's a sense where we have this great awe and respect and fear because there's nothing safe about him. But he's good. And we know he's good. And we cannot help but be drawn to him. Lewis, C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caused, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And they found that they couldn't look at him, and they went all trembling. But his voice was deep and rich, and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet, and it did not seem awkward to stand there and say nothing. As I said, the fear of God, it seems like on the one hand we have no business being in His presence. And yet on the other hand, He's made us to be in His presence. What a wonderful thing. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. You see, fearing God is that controlling sense of majesty, of His holiness, of the holiness of God, and the profound reverence that flows from Him. The fear of God is this joy-filled reverence. It's this awe of the one true God that shakes us at the very core of our being. And it brings forth a response of faith and love. I mean, this is not this is not just an Old Testament idea. In Hebrews twelve, this is in in verses really all the way from verses eighteen through twenty nine. It says that we have come to Mount Zion, not to the frightening display of God's power at Mount Sinai, but we've come to Mount Zion. And the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to it. Let us hold on to our grace. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So you see, this is also a New Testament dimension of the fear of God. And even in Revelation, it says that we are told in glory, we will fear God. If you fear God... There is no reason to be frightened of him. But if you don't fear God, then there is every reason to be frightened of him. And so God wanted to cultivate in the Israelites and in us a true, gracious, joy-filled, saving reverence of all, which is at the heart of every believer. And there was a second thing that Moses did for the Israelites. As their mediator, not only did he speak uh, as God's mouthpiece to them, 
but he went, uh, represented them to God. The people remained standing at at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Who can stand and go before God in his presence? Only a mediator. This is what a mediator does. He enters God's presence on behalf of the people. He draws near to God as their representative. To put it in uh, some terms, he boldly goes where no one else would dare to go. And Moses did that. You know, with everyone else trembling with fear, he alone went up to meet God, to talk with God, to receive the rest of the law. He did this on behalf of God's people so they would know God's will for their lives. You know, there's there's so many things that a mediator does. A mediator makes atonement for sin, which Moses did. After the sacrifices were offered to God, he sprinkled the people with the saving blood. A mediator intercedes for God's people. Moses did that. He pleaded with God not to destroy them when they sinned. A mediator lays down his life for the people he serves. Moses was even willing to do that. Remember when the Israelites broke God's law by worshiping a golden calf, he prayed, Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, erase me from the book you've written. God did not just give his people his law and then leave them to suffer the consequences of breaking it. He gave them Moses the mediator to lead them in the way. And even as Moses drew near to the Lord, we know we're reminded that no fallen human being can ever draw near to God without a mediator. And you know what? Even Moses, who was a mediator of the old covenant, who was appointed by God to be a mediator, he could not have drawn near to God Unless there was a greater mediator. Because Moses himself was a sinner. And though Moses brought the sacrifices on behalf of the people before God. And though Aaron lifted up those sacrifices. We know from reading in the book of Hebrews. That the blood of bulls and goats could not forgive sins. And so Moses himself needed a mediator. Moses, just like us. Moses was a fallen human sinner. And he had a mediator. Jesus Christ. Whose glorious saving mediation not only stretches forth from the time of the cross to our day and all the way to glory, but it stretched back in time covering Moses. And the covering and covering the children of Israel and sheltering them and shielding them from the presence of the glory and from the judgment of God. Because the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus himself was a sacrifice. He has shielded us from the condemnation that we deserve. So that we can go into the presence of the father. And say, Abba, Father. Yeah, what did Jesus do? Jesus did things as a mediator that Moses could never do. 
perfect obedience to the law. Jesus followed the Ten Commandments perfectly. Jesus worshipped God alone perfectly. He honored God's name perfectly. He kept the Sabbath holy perfectly. He honored His parents perfectly. He loved His enemies perfectly. He told the truth perfectly and did everything God had told Him to do. Hmm. You see, kind of looking back on the uh, story from the Chronicles of Narnia, only God can make God safe. Our righteousness can't make God safe. We can't just reinterpret God and say, oh, God is love. Because the Bible says a few other things about God as well. We can't just say, well, God loves everybody and He's going to send everybody to heaven. Because that's not what the Bible says. You can't make God safe by getting rid of hell. You can't make God safe by buying into universalism. You can't make God safe by elevating one of God's attributes over all the rest of them. You can't make God safe by attempting to be righteous in His sight. The only way that God can be made safe is by God Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this about fear. He said, fear fastens the eye. When one has a fearful apprehension of a thing, it causes the eye to be fastened upon that thing. So when a congregation comes to have many among it who tremble at God's word, it fastens the attention and their thoughts are bent unto it in a more solemn way. And they dare not give liberty to themselves. No, not to the wandering of their thoughts, much less of their eyes up and down. But they are watching to hear what God has to say to them. So as we walk in a awesome fear of the Lord, let us use that fear to fasten our eyes upon Him. Let us use that fear to understand who He is. And on the one hand, how holy and righteous and pure He is. And on the other hand, how good He is to us. So let's fasten our eyes upon Him. We're not to be frightened, but we are to fear Him. Now let's pray. Father it's one thing to be frightened of you if we were to come before you as unwashed sinners but it's another thing to have the fear of the Lord as we come before you knowing that we have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ thank you for teaching us we do not have to be frightened Oh, may we fasten our eyes on you. May we tremble at your word. May we comprehend the greatness 
of the great mediator, Jesus Christ, and the work he has done for us. Father, we are forever grateful that he has shielded us from the condemnation that we deserve. So that we, me, we might come into your presence with joy, with reverence, and with awe. We give you praise and we exalt your holy name. Amen.